Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Dope Black Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Dope Black Dads Podcast. I'm Marcus Ramtahol, and today I am joined by Henry Appiah, who's got really an incredible story um, from coming over from, from Ghana from the age of seven to, you know, all these many years later um, to, you know, everything else in between, which we're going to get into today around business and social mobility and what it means to be a black father uh, in this day and age. I won't ruin too much because I want to hear uh, Henry tell his story much better than I can. Henry, welcome. Thank you, Marcus. So it's nice to be on. Yeah, it's great. Great to have you. Um, and your story is just really incredible. And I, I really want to do it justice. So uh, for for me and for all our, of our listeners, just tell us a bit about your background and your journey um, and kind of, I suppose, your life went before or even when you got to the UK. Okay, so um, for all your listeners out there, um, I came from Ghana when I was um, seven years old. My sister and I, who's um, three years older than me, and um, we came to um, an environment that um, none of us had ever been exposed to. And I guess to a certain extent, um, my story is probably not too dissimilar to a lot of um, people who were brought over um, from diaspora when they were young. So my parents um, had come over to the UK many years beforehand and had left us with um, in-laws. And um, to all intents and purposes, they were almost like relative strangers to, to us. So when we were called over to the UK and came over for the first time, we were two kids who spoke very little English, very little English. And um, I, I always tell people about a story that um, happened when I first got here. And I was so in awe of what I was seeing all around me that as I was walking along, I bumped into a lamppost. Oh, wow. And my dad bought me a can of, yeah, my dad bought me a can of ginger beer, which for a long time was my favorite drink. Um, I actually don't drink it very much now because I, it's, it's a little bit too sweet for my, for my taste buds. But um, to say it was a bit of a culture shock um, is a bit of an understatement. It really was a, a culture shock coming over from really hot climbs and, um, you know, being in a really, really cold foreign environment where um, it seemed like you were a real minority. So um, it's been an interesting journey so far. Reminds me of uh, my father came over in the 60s and, and as I was older, he finally started to tell me some stories about kind of when he came for the first time. My my uncle was was working here as a diplomat at the time 
And um, I, I said, my dad told the story of how he arrived. Funny enough, my dad arrived on April Fool's Day, um, which you always have a little, a little bit okay. of a chuckle about. <laughs> Celebrating on April Fool's Day that he changed the direction of his life, yeah. came to the UK for better or worse. Um, and he said he came off the plane and he was just freezing. He couldn't believe how cold it was. And he'd arranged to meet um, his brother, my uncle, and he was just completely lost in, you know, he said, I'll oh, take this train, take the underground, do this, do that. And he was like, what are you talking about? And then he met him and he said, where's yeah. your coat? Where's your gloves? And my dad was like, I, I don't know, like, I just got here. <laughs> um, <laughs> what were the sorts of things yeah. that for you were quite, you know, you mentioned you were in awe. What kind of things were you experiencing and mm-hmm. seeing? So I guess, I mean, well, if you just take um, the circumstances that we'd come from. So, we, I mean, we, we came from, you know, absolute, well, I, I would classify as poverty. Um, and came into an environment which, to all intents and purposes, was also poverty because the house that we lived in um, was pretty cold. Um, I shared a room with my sister up until I was probably 14, 15, 16, that sort of age. Um, And the house was mice infested as well, which wasn't unpleasant. Um, And it was just, it was just, you know, I, I would say not a very pleasant experience, but it's something that as obviously as time you know went by you kind of you know got adapted to or you got used to but i think the biggest challenge for me was um was 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 the fact that obviously the language is a ma- major barrier and um the way we overcame it um and and you know i always give um gratitude and um eternal um thanks to the council but um they sent us to a specialist language center where i kind of recall having um, earphones placed over our ears to help us, I presume, with our addiction, um, just sort of general understanding. And um, I would say it probably wasn't very long before, you know, I became a lot more sort of comfortable speaking English. Um, and almost to the extent that um, I, I became so comfortable that I decided I actually didn't want to speak in my, my mother tongue anymore to my parents. And that's something that, um, you know, to this day now, I really regret because anytime I go back to Ghana, I always feel like I'm a total foreigner, you know. Um, <laughs> even though I speak, I understand more than I actually speak, but um, it's still really difficult being in, you know, being in that sort of environment. So, um, yeah, I mean, that, that, that was a major challenge. And, and then obviously, you know, being a young black man as well with all the sort of racism and that sort of stuff that you had to contend with, um, it, was, it, was, it was really difficult. But, um, you know, with time, and I guess also um, just, just you know, I've always been a fairly cheeky sort of person. So I think if you can really sort of, um, you know, get to understand the environment that you're in and the sort of people that you're, you know, you're, you're, you're dealing with, it can help you to overcome quite, you know, quite a few issues. So, um, you know, that's always sort of been one of my sort of, you know, greatest um, strengths, I guess. And you mentioned that you were sharing with your sister right up until about the age of 14, but um, correct me if I'm wrong. You you then moved out of, your, of the family home at the age of seventeen. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. So this is where my journey in, in, and into my work stroke business life um, started. So um, back then, I guess um, the the biggest challenge that I had to overcome was education. So I've always been good at um, English. I've been good at history, and um, I thought I was quite good at economics as well. Um, and I'm definitely good at politics because I enjoy politics. So I decided that um, after secondary school, um, going into um, A-levels, that I, was, I would study um, um, economics and um, history. And very shortly, 
um, into it, realized that actually I didn't actually enjoy education. By then, at around about sort of early 17s, I'd got a job working in McDonald's um, in Wembley High Street and um, realized that I was really good at it. You know, within literally a, a week or two of having started, they were ringing around the very few restaurants that McDonald's had at the time anyway, especially in London, to find out if I'd actually ever worked in one of those restaurants before because I just became, a, you know, I was just a real natural. So, um, you know, once I realised that, you know, I had a sort of a flair for just, just you know, understanding how things worked and also being able to, um, to manage people, um, I decided then that, I felt, you know, I can make a career out of this. So I had a difficult conversation with my dad, especially, who always had notions of me, you know, going on to do all the sort of things that, you know, are expected of, of young kids from um, ethnic backgrounds, being a doctor or whatever, you know, um, being a lawyer. But none of those really appealed to me. So I told him I was going to leave and I was going to become a full-time employee at McDonald's. And... And um, yeah, that was it. It caused a lot of issues. So I decided that, you know, I couldn't stay at home anymore. So I left. Um, I stayed with a, a person who I'd become friends with, actually, in McDonald's. He stayed in his dad's house for six months while his dad was in Ghana. And then when the dad came back, he asked me to leave. So I found some, some um, alternative accommodation with another friend from McDonald's in, 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 um, in Wheelstone in Harrow and um, ended up staying and became almost like a, a family member with, of theirs for five or six wow. years before, you know, I decided then obviously to, you know, by then I got into a situation where I could afford to start looking at, um, you know, um, living by myself. Um, and as it transpired, I ended up living with the guy that had first put me up in um, in um, Stonebridge for those six months. So, yeah, um, it, it's, it's, it's been really interesting. And so... You've, you've taken this huge decision that actually this is not just, you know, you're going to leave home and this is going to be your job, but this is going to be your career. So tell me a bit more about your mm -hmm. um, kind of progression through through McDonald's, because I understand it was quite quite new at the time, right? Yeah, yeah. So at the time that I started, I think there were, just, so we're talking about um, 1979, or 17. So it, I don't think there were more than probably... 20, 20, maybe about 22, 23 restaurants um, in, in a system at the time. So uh, I became, or, you know, they, they obviously recognized that, um, you know, I had the qualities to develop and um, I got promoted to the, 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 the sort of the junior ranks of, of management, um, a position that we call a floor manager. And all that um, basically happens as, as a floor manager is that, you know, you're in charge of maybe a particular section of the restaurant, um, you know, during your shift. And your job is to basically um, try and help the, the staff members that are under you to implement the McDonald's systems and effectively train them to become, you know, better staff members and um, help with the, you know, the senior management to just, you know, run the shift. So... You know, that, that that was sort of my first foray in, into management. And by the time I was 20, I think it was just, yeah, just not, not long after my 20th birthday, um, I applied to become a, what we call a salaried manager, which is, you know, the first proper um, ladder of uh, management in, within McDonald's, senior management. So I applied for a, that position 
uh, and I I was told that I was going to be moved to Kentish Town, um, which at the time was a restaurant which was relatively quiet in comparison to the restaurant that I was working in in Wembley. So I went to Kentish Town and it was I found it really, really challenging because all of a sudden you've you know you've you've lost contact with the people that you've you know you've grown up with in, in your journey and you're 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 starting off with in a you know different set of circumstances um really quiet as i said um but you know it, you you're getting a different perspective of of what what the company is all about so um i went to kentish town had a brilliant time in the end i really really enjoyed it there and within about a year, a year and a half, um, I'd been promoted to uh, what we call a first assistant manager, which is, you know, in effect, the next rung to being a restaurant manager. And um, by 1983, I'd been promoted to restaurant manager at Swiss Cottage, and become, you know, be, um, and and um, my journey of, you know, just being a restaurant manager started at that at that point. So um, that really sort of like. You know, made me really understand what was possible, and I then stayed in Swiss Cottage for approximately four and a half years before McDonald's decided, after some soul searching, I think within themselves, that I was more than competent to become an area manager, and so um, I was promoted to an area manager in 1987, and had three restaurants to look after or to oversee that were polar opposites. I had Wood Green, which was as busy as they come at that time. Um, Golders Green, which was, you know, relatively high volume. And then Harlesden, which was a real challenge. So, um, yeah, those were interesting times. Those were interesting times. And you mentioned you've, uh, you, you recognise within yourself really quickly that management was for you that you had a flair for management what in particular would you say was your your biggest strength when it came to to management and your progression through mcdonald's at a time where i imagine as well a young black man kind of progressing progressing in that side of business was potentially quite difficult yeah so back then um especially in london we had a huge amount of um black people that were working in the company but when it came to the management side at sort of the junior level where I'd started off, there were, you know, quite a lot. Sort of the assistant manager um, roles, it, then those numbers started to, um, to, to to decrease a little bit. And then restaurant management, there were very, very few. Um, and then area management level, there was even fewer. So I guess to have, um, you know, attained a position where my peers and my um superiors recognized that you know i had the ability to be able to to manage was something in itself and i guess the reason why is because i think i've got a real affinity with people i'm able to a understand um the issues that they've they they've had or are having um i'm able to 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 be able to to lead and to nurture and i think i'm really good at listening and understanding people's um, issues. And all those things are really, really, really important. So those are my core skills. Also, y- you're working in an environment which um, isn't easy. So you've got to be able to understand sort of 
how to deal with the politics of, you know, of, of, of a big company. And um, I've, I, I think, you know, I'm able to sort of like, you know, just sort of blend in um, and, you know, go with the flow. And that really, really helps because, you know, like, as I said before, because there are so few black people in, in, in those senior positions or middle management positions, you don't really have much of a reference point in terms of, you know, um, sort of the, the, what's expected of you, I yeah, guess. So, you, you know, you, you've got to really be able to sort of stand on your own. Yeah, it's, it's a really important point, actually. And hopefully our listeners will get a lot from hearing about your journey because, um, there's so, so much value in hearing a story like yours and hearing a reference point you don't normally get, um, which I absolutely love. Um, and interestingly as well, you know, you talked about what was a really tough kind of introduction to the UK, but then this progression from, you know, working class to, you know, essentially a middle class, I suppose, lifestyle, income, etc. cetera. Um, how has that for you? How has that changed? Um, <laughs> it's really strange because I'm, I'm sure my daughter, who's somewhere in the audience, will attest to it. In, in our household, there's a there's a there's a real tussle in terms of our, our mindsets and our attitudes towards education, um, especially funded education. So because I'm I'm I, I've always classed myself, and will always class myself as working class. I've always believed in my kids being educated in a comprehensive system the same way I was. Unfortunately, my wife, on the other hand, has a totally different mindset. So my kids, fortunately, um, have had the good fortune to have a mother who's who's um, encouraged me to make sure that, um, you know, they've had the best opportunities in, in, in education. So um, the, the fact that I've been able to, you know, to do really well in my business life today has enabled them all to obviously have, you know, um, the, the sort of education that, you know, most kids would, would dream of. So, yeah, they, they're the net beneficiaries of that. And you said you've got three kids, is that right? So I've got four kids. Yeah, four. I've got four, four kids, but um, well, yeah, t- two of them are not my own by biology um, and the other two are. So, yeah, I've got four kids and, and the, 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 the oldest one came into my life when he was six months old and he's now 31 wow wow that is yeah. that is um a lot of, of uh, parenting knowledge and know-how from lots of different mm-hmm. kind of um spheres of life as well um yeah so what's the relationship like with them you know you, you've had this this incredible journey where you've you've arrived in this country living in a you know, mice infested um, dwelling to mm-hmm. providing a kind of different level of, of lifestyle for your children and, and watching them grow up to the age yeah. of 31. Um, yeah, what's what's that like? You know, four kids, all these, all these years of experience. I, I can't say it's been easy. And the reason why it's not easy is because naturally, if you've, if, if you've brought somebody up from a young age who's not your own, when you have your own kids the um the management of that can become an issue because you're dealing with effectively two sets of parents or two sets of mothers who've um you know who've got their own ideas of how you know you sh- you should treat their own child so I've, I've had to manage and i've had to learn to understand that a child who's not mine biology by biology even though i feel is mine may not um, 
it's, it's really difficult. It's, it's it, it, you know, it, it takes it takes managing the, the mother relationship um, to 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 get all the parties to understand that at the end of the day, your vested interest is in the child, and and, and it's not the politics of you know whether they're yours by biology or so forth. Now, as as you know, as as it's transpired over the years. Everything's all really smooth in the household now. All my, ki- all four kids get on absolutely brilliantly. They don't see that there's any differences in terms of biology, um, and you know it's just a harmonious um, household. So yeah, but it's but it's been challenging. What would you say is is the key to having got that harmonious household, or your your biggest parenting takeaway? I suppose if you could give one message to the listeners about being a dope black dad, mm-hmm. what would it be? Mm-hmm. It would be, you've got to really believe that if you're taking on a responsibility, you've got to see all the way through. There can't be any half measures. I mean, at the end of the day, a child, once they've formed an emotional attachment to you, relies on you. And my my attitude's always been that I would try my damnedest to make sure that, you know, I, I give them the, the best possible opportunity. So, I mean, although um, the oldest one didn't go to private school, um, he's bright enough to be able to go to a really good grammar school and, and to go to university. And, and to, be, to be fair, so far, all the three olders have all gone to university. They've all gone to the same university as well. So, oh, wow. um, yeah, that, that's that's um, a, a connection that uh, they all share. But but the biggest takeaway is that, you know, you've really got to believe in them and you've got to stand by them no matter what. Because, you know, there are issues in their life. And um, the easiest thing sometimes is to sort of like shut yourself away and, you know, just shut out of the noise but unfortunately you know you can't do that and I really really believe that um, you know giving kids a, a good solid foundation is really important and also showing them love as well because you know one of the, the biggest issues that I have is that um, you know I love my parents because they're my parents but you know coming over from Africa they they were kind of detached from us in terms of emotion um, so they saw us as children who you know, especially my dad, who's really, really a strict disciplinarian. It's just children who should listen and obey, you know, his commands and um, and not really have much of a voice. So, you know, um, I've, I've always tried to, 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 to understand my kids and to be their friend and also their parent as well, because um, they also need to understand that there are boundaries, you know. So, um, yeah, I think that's, you know, that's one of the most challenging things to do as This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. As a father, oh yeah. So, I, yeah, I definitely feel that as well. And I feel that for me personally, <laughs> I, I got that from my dad. My dad was very, he was very a strict disciplinarian, but also as I got older and more aware of the sorts of sacrifices he was making for for us in our lives, and um, I don't know when, what age I was or what moment was, I suddenly realised, hey, dad's always right. You know, every time he says, I oh, don't do this because this will happen, it happens. <laughs> um, yeah. And yeah, even now at the age of 37, I have this this relationship I never really pictured with my dad, which is great, where I can just phone him up and say, hey, I'm not sure about this. And and we can have that conversation. And then I have to kind of rewind 30 years ago to, you know, you do one thing wrong and that slipper would come out and you'd be <laughs> screaming down yeah. the hallway. Um <laughs> And I, was, I can't remember who I was interviewing the other day, and I mentioned actually, you know, the way we we parent now compared to how we were raised, but also the way my parents look after my kids. I'm like, hey, you would have hit me if I'd have done that. What's going on? <laughs> and he's like, oh, we know better now. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a really yeah. interesting balance because it's it is so important, isn't it, to have that discipline, but also to have that connection and, and not be afraid of sharing that that love that you have and showing that emotion yeah. you have. Um, and potentially, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this, culturally, maybe something we've not done as much um the mm-hmm, role mm-hmm. used to be certainly that in particularly in, in you know black culture and in my case asian culture as well like this is the hierarchy this is the role i am your parent and i'm here to keep you on the straight and narrow and discipline you mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um so how how has that been for you with, with balancing those things yeah it's you know what marcus that's um i guess when you're young you 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 literally will tell your kids what they need to do and and they'll follow but once they get to I I think probably 15 16 that light switch that comes on in their head that um, makes them think no you're not always right I'm going to rebel against what you're saying um I'm going to be difficult I'm going to be bloody minded um and and I'm actually going through that with that situation now with my 16 year old because you know he's now obviously he's, he's discovering himself as a young man and um you know he thinks that um you can challenge my authority and you know that's a real that's something that and I guess it's because he's always he's the youngest as well so the youngest to a certain extent always the ones that everyone always assumes are spot right (laughs) so he thinks he can get away with more things than all the others would have done you know so um you know I'm I'm hoping that it's just a phase he's going through (laughs) and um at some point in time you'll realize that you know what dad is always right most of the time um and and um you know he, he won't give me so much back chat um but um we'll see you know it's just that I, I guess it's just it, it's just 
part of you know of them growing up and discover discovering themselves as as, as young people. So um, yeah, I'll, I'll wait for the time when he realizes that time he needs to behave himself. <laughs> <laughs> so actually, I've I've not got any sons. I've got two daughters. My eldest is ten, okay. and I feel like okay. she's already creeping into that stage. She's still lovely and adorable, but there's there's definitely yeah. elements creeping in now where there's there's a little young woman. Who's, yeah. who's got an opinion about stuff and it's kind of starting to come out. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and also, um, Marcus, so I, I, I always remember when I was, you know, a bit a younger man, I always said to myself, when I've got kids and if I've got a daughter, I'm going to lock her up in a chastity belt. <laughs> and, you know, she's going to be... And you know what? That is the hardest thing to get your head around, the fact that your daughter is going out with a boy, you know. And um, it took me a long time to, 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 to understand that, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't influence her decisions with boys nor that lot in any way whatsoever you know and it actually took my older son to um to say to me look dad you need to just you know rein in your your thought processes because if you don't you know you you just end up with her um rebelling against you and um you know so yeah that that, that's been a a a major challenge having a daughter but you know what she's she's as sweet as anything so yeah it's all been worthwhile my my wife regularly reminds me um that i need to be wary of such things and uh I still yeah. can't get my head around it. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm praying that I will be able to to deal with it when it comes and be very <laughs> mature about it. But yes, it is a bit frightening. Um, yeah. But you mentioned, you know, about having a 16 year old son, and we had Pierce Freelon on the pod recently talking about the work he does with with uh, young black men and some of the conversations he's having with them about their role as as a black male in the modern world and and some of the things conversations he's hearing with these kids and saying hang on a minute you know that maybe you need to rethink what you're saying there um mm-hmm. would you feel that the role of of young black men is in in the future of our society whoa that's a tough one um i think i, I you know this might be a little bit controversial but so I, I mean, my I, I have a I have a McDonald's restaurant as a franchisee um, in uh, Saint Raphs, um in um, on the borders of I guess Stonebridge, um, Stroke Harlesden, Wembley, and it's a school incidentally that um oh sorry a, a, an area that um Raheem Sterling um, lived as well. So I see all sorts of kids in that in 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 that restaurant, and one of the biggest things that I've always um, found challenging is is getting them to understand that they can be more than what they believe that they can be but in order to do that sometimes they've got to give up a little bit of themselves and their attitudes and their mindsets in order to fit because unfortunately whether you like it or not we live in a very white English um, society and as a young black man with ideas on how you feel that you should be respected or um, how you feel you should sort of fit into society it's not always as straightforward as that. You're going to have to give a little bit of yourself in order to be able to, you know, sort of cut through all, all, all the difficulties that, um, you know, you're going to encounter. And um, that's always been the biggest challenge. And, you know, I always constantly try and talk to these guys to just sort of say, you, you change your mindset. You know, I, I know things like how you speak and so forth. It's probably not so easy because you want to fit into, you know, the way that your, your friends all behave. That's fine, but you know, if you want people to take you um, as as somebody who's got p- potential or possibilities, then you really got to just cut out some of the nonsense attitudes that you have, and it's and it's not easy because you know I don't know if these guys believe in you, 
um, or, or they think maybe you've become too white or whatever. But it is a real challenge. And I, you know, that's, I just wish there was some kind of like, you know, magic pill that you can throw down their throats to make them understand that, you know, it's a hard world out there. And, and um, if you want to succeed, you've got to play your part, but you've got to change your mindset a little bit. Yeah, and I think that's, it's a really difficult kind of um, balance, isn't it? To try and figure out how you're going to make some some headway in, in this world and, and, you know, still maintain that identity of, um, you know, progress and, and do what you want to do. And it's really interesting you mentioned that you're having these conversations in in those, you know, places. You know, I'm assuming that you're an entrepreneur, you've got the franchises and, and I'm hearing you're, mm-hmm. you're actually there on the ground speaking to people and, yeah. and talking to people. Um, and obviously speaking to people is really important to you, otherwise you wouldn't necessarily have succeeded yeah. so much in management. You mentioned it was your, your big secret weapon. Um, so how yeah. often are you kind of going around there and, and doing all that? So, I mean, I'm in a restaurant uh, maybe four or five times a week. Wow. Um, and, you know, you, you'll bump to these kids more often not sort of lunchtime or just after school. Um, and, you know, if, if I see them being unruly, that's the times when I, I'll go and talk to them. I mean, just this afternoon, I had a young man, just as I was leaving the restaurant, who had a cigarette lighter in his hand. He couldn't have been more than 14, 15. And I said to him, that, do you mind just putting the lighter away? Because, you know, you could end up causing some damage and you're not going to, and you're not, you know, you're not going to want to pay for it. And he said, who are you? And I said, well, as it happens, I'm the owner of the restaurant. And, um, and the young girl next to him said, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you need to behave. You need to behave. You need to behave. And, um, and then he's, he started swearing. And I said, um, by the way, don't swear, please, because some people find it really offensive. So, you know, uh, that's the sort of thing that happens on a fairly regular basis where you're having to try and help somebody to understand that, you know, there's a certain standard of behavior that's expected of them. Um, and, you know, they need to try and adhere to that. And I know it's not easy because a lot of these times, you know, a lot of the times so these kids want to, uh, they want to show off to their friends, you know, they want to show that I'm the big I am, you know, I'm the big man, but it's, it, it, it's, it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not edifying. It's not good for them. And it's not, you know, good for the environment that Tom, you know, that, 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 that they're in as well. So, you know, yeah, as much as I can, I'm always imparting some words of wisdom to, to somebody. So, you know, I think it's important. You know, and if I can help anybody, any one person, just to be, you know, be able to sort of, you know, look at themselves and, you know, maybe, you know, change the way that they think, then I'm more than happy to do so. Well, it's an incredibly selfless thing and um, a very challenging environment to kind of put yourself in and and share that wisdom. And hopefully they'll mm-hmm. um, appreciate the intervention later on in life, sooner rather than later. Um, yeah. So I understand, obviously, you've, you've had this incredible journey from mcdonald's into management into franchise owner as well tell us a bit Mm -hmm. more about Mm -hmm. becoming a franchise owner yeah so this is probably the proudest um achievement in my in in my life so far so i applied to become a mcdonald's franchisee in my oh no no i can't remember what month it was in in 1992 and um it maybe took about no in fact it was probably the year before yeah and i was finally granted the franchise in 1992 and incidentally, in the restaurant that I started when I was um, 17. Wow. So, yeah, you can imagine the pride that A, I felt, and B, my parents felt as well. Um, after having, I remember saying to me that, you know, there was no future in McDonald's, you know. So, um, 
yeah that 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 was the most proudest uh, moment in my life so yeah it was um you know i was the first black franchisee in mcdonald's uk as well Gosh. which is again something that i'll take with me to to my grave um and um you know it's it's just something i like dining out on you know telling people that because it kind of <laughs> makes people think wow you know um but it's not i mean it's, that is pretty incredible i've got yeah. to take a moment just to to celebrate that that's absolutely incredible 1992 yeah. mm-hmm. and you know i remember what 1992 was like yeah. <laughs> um the first black franchisee mm-hmm. uh, in mcdonald's mm-hmm. that is really something yeah yeah so yeah i mean it's it's, it's been an incredible journey i mean that you know at various times i've had up to three restaurants now unfortunately i'm on the sort of the end of my journey i'm getting to a point where i'm i'm you know i'm virtually out out of the business and i'm looking at almost semi-retirement um because i would have done well i've done just over 43 years and um you know all my hair which is as luscious as well was as luscious as yours when i was younger (laughs) (laughs) has now disappeared so and and the gray as you can see my beard is um really prominent now so um yeah i'm at a stage now where i think it's time to sort of like you know kick back a little bit and sort of reevaluate and decide a if I want to still carry on working because I really don't need to work anymore. I'm, you know, financially, com- financially comfortable enough not to have to work. So, um, you know, I'm going to sort of, you know, take some time out to just um, just reflect and, you know, enjoy being with my my wife and, um, you know, as much as possible trying to, you know, do a bit more traveling, even though I've done a lot of traveling in my life. And then decide, you know, within maybe sort of three or four months, if I if I'm enjoying retirement or whether or you know I'm going to you know maybe come back into another business of some sort. So, you know, but um, you know, I've been immensely grateful to McDonald's for the 43 years. Um, it hasn't gone as well as I would have liked. I would have liked to have ended with more restaurants, but you know what? You know, it's given me a life that time I would never have imagined when I was um, seven years old and not you know able to speak any English. So um, I'm eternally grateful, and I've given a lot of myself as well to them. So. Um, it's a it's a mutually sim, was it symbiotic yes. relationship, and I, I've enjoyed I've enjoyed I'd say probably eighty to ninety percent of it along the way. So I was going to ask you if there were any kind of inklings you might have for for future business ventures, but I'll let you mm-hmm. enjoy your time away from that and think about <laughs> that. But you know, yeah. I love I love to travel. It's the reason I do the work that I do. Um, it's always been the the raison d'être for anything that I've pursued. Where's mm-hmm. is there anywhere you want to revisit or anywhere that's on your bucket list to travel to? Yeah, so um we've been to Zambia once. My my wife's got a really good friend who lives in Zambia. She's a she's in the um justice system. And um we were planning to go back again um not not too long ago, but um it hasn't happened. Um I'd like to go to I've been to China once, wow. um, but I'd like to go to um South Asia at some point in, in life. Um and where else? Um, I don't know, maybe somewhere like Hawaii or something like that. I mean, I've done a lot of the Americas anyway, so um, there's not much more that I want to see out there. Um, and maybe just, yeah, more parts of Africa because, you know, I'm an African by birth and I've still got a certain African mentality. So, um, you know, more more of um, that continent. I had an opportunity to go to Australia at one point, but it's just too far away and I just couldn't contemplate sitting there playing for that. <laughs> That length of time and then i went to jamaica once and i absolutely love jamaica and the caribbean so that's on you know another continent or another part of the world that i'm gonna go and see as well so there's a few places still on my bucket list still, that I want to see. still a few but places if anybody mentions water and going on a on a on a cruise not for me <laughs> don't enjoy water at all <laughs> and, and that's and that goes back to when i was younger so when i was younger i nearly drowned oh gosh 
And so I've always had a, a healthy um, respect of water. So I know sitting on, on a ship doesn't feel like, you know, um, you're actually in water, but it's just got an inherent sort of, you know, not fear, but um, healthy respect for it. So yeah, cruises doesn't appeal to me at all. Well, I don't know if this will allay your fears or not, but um, mm-hmm. I didn't learn to swim till I was 16. And at the time, okay. no, a bit later on actually, I was, so 16 when I learned how to swim finally. And at the age of 18, I had a scholarship to join the Royal Navy. And I still wasn't oh, a particularly yep. strong swimmer. And I did mention it to the mm-hmm. officer recruiting guy. And he said to me, well, to be honest, these ships are out in the middle of the ocean. If you fall off one of those ships, it doesn't matter how good a swimmer you are. <laughs> and I don't know if this is still the case, but basically the, yeah. the kind of prerequisite swim ability is to be able to swim, I think, 25, maybe 50 metres breaststroke. And that's it okay. for the Royal Navy. Okay. Because okay. of that very okay. reason, you know, if you fall off a ship in the ocean... <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it, you're toast, yeah. Yeah, so what's yeah. the point? The funny thing is, though, you know, I I, I actually do like, I, I love fish, which uh, is a strange contradiction. So um, I, we went to we went to America once and um, I jumped into the water with my snorkel and it got flooded with water. And so I panicked and my youngest daughter, well, my, my daughter Louise had to rescue me along with the other people on the boat. So I was determined to con- conquer my fear. So when we went to Jamaica, um, I went um, snorkeling then and, and did it properly and I absolutely loved it. So um, I still got a healthy respect for water, but, you know, I just love, I love snorkeling. So um, I'll try and do a bit more of that as well. No, that sounds very cool. I'm a scuba diver myself and I don't get to do it as often as, as I'd like to. Okay. But as I said, incredibly weak swimmer. So um, uh, I don't know how yeah. I ended up becoming a diver, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I love, I love seeing, <laughs> seeing the fish as well. Um, yeah. Gosh, it was a, such a, a random segue. I've lost my, my train yeah. of thought there. <laughs> I can recommend South so, Asia yeah. as well. Yeah. So, I mean, this whole thing about um, a, a dope um, black dad, I mean, it was something that was, you know, when Louise mentioned it to me, I thought, you know, what what, what is this all about? You know, um, and to a certain extent, I still haven't actually haven't researched it, but I just thought, you know, I'd come along and listen to what, um, what it was all about. So perhaps you can, you know, sort of enlighten me a little bit more in terms of, what it is that you're trying sure. to, to, to get across. Sure. So, I mean, it's very interesting. I, I feel like I'm the subject of the interview now, which doesn't normally happen, <laughs> but I'm, I'll gladly elaborate because actually yeah. um, myself and Umar and, and a couple of others are new, newish to the Dope Black Dads team. It's Marvin Harrison's okay. baby, really. He's been doing it for a long time. It stemmed from, and he won't mind me saying, um, his conversations with his fellow dads uh, when his child or children were very small and feeling Mm -hmm. a bit lost and a bit like well the matriarch is doing everything and I feel a bit useless and actually Mm -hmm. I don't feel very good about myself as a father although I Mm -hmm. want to be Mm -hmm. a really good father so he was messaging his friends speaking quite openly about where his head was at and finding that a lot of his fellow black fathers were like hey you know what I'm feeling the same way so it yeah. kind of became like a, a support group slash mechanism for, for guys to kind of have those those conversations about what, you know, being a father in this day and age really means. Uh, and the podcast yeah. was a means for, for Marvin to explore so many issues um, around being, being a black male, being a black father, um, interview some really cool people with interesting stories and share them to a wider audience. Um, fast forward to... Um, you know, they, they won a Webby Award before we joined. And uh, to this year, Marvin's got books coming out and he's on the um, 
is on the telly every five minutes, it feels like, or on the radio, okay. talking about various okay. things. And he decided he needed uh, a team around him to, to continue the good work. So uh, okay. gratefully accepted the, the baton to, to take on uh, you know, interviewing some incredible guests and speaking about our own mm-hmm. experiences and using our own expertise as well. So sometimes we do things by ourselves. Um, my most recent um, solo podcast relates to my work in the productivity space. Um, yeah, and so we're just kind of spreading the the message that um, you know, black fatherhood is is amazing and challenging mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. rewarding. And also, at the same time, getting to speak to some incredibly wonderful and inspiring individuals and hear their stories and share those stories, uh, because there's just so much power in doing that as well. And, and sure. uh, thank you, Henry, for sharing your story as well. It's, it's such an inspiration for sure. for anyone out there, no matter kind of where they are in their journey, whether they've you know arrived from another country at a young age and, and couldn't speak English, or they've actually had quite um, a... Uh, a nice background there's still so much more to explore so many options um and there's so many people like yourself who've laid the way for that as well pioneers who have done so much um to to give us a platform so thank you very much for that um and thank you for giving me a moment to kind of talk about how i got here as well so (laughs) i appreciate your your question okay um okay with that in mind i feel that's a great place for us to to call it a day i'm so so grateful for you joining me today um okay i'm gonna have to ask now what's next henry (laughs) (laughs) um i don't know maybe one day i'll write a book who knows i don't know i don't um you know what marcus i'm I'm just gonna enjoy life i'm i'm gonna embrace the opportunity to really get to 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 understand myself a lot more, understand my relationship with my wife as well, um, and also you know just 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 have an open mind, have an open mind to you know to, to what's out there, um, because you know it's 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 a real tough choice deciding whether you stay retired because I've heard so many horror stories of people being retired and you know things not working out for them and and um, you know. And so I've, I've got to decide, is it really something I want to do? Because like I said, I'm 60, so I've still got, you know, got quite a few years of working life, but, um, but we'll see, we'll see, we'll see how the land lies. And, um, you know, I'll just, I'll just, I'll just enjoy. Um, um. Well, I, I hope you do, and I'm sure that you will. Thank you once again. Um, you. And remember guys, uh, there's plenty more Don't Black Dirt podcasts coming your way as well. Until then, Henry, thank you very much. Thank you. Dope Black Podcast. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.